All right, I have two questions to answer tonight, and it's kind of interesting because these are the two people left. We're doing it by attrition here, I guess. So I got the other questions in while those families were here that asked the questions. Well, except for the Robertses, they um, were gone last week, but hopefully they're getting through the podcast, they're getting it. And so tonight, I want to address a couple of the other questions and, uh, and go through some of this in terms of uh, how we minister with and to our children, what we demand out of them. Uh, we got a couple of examples here that are hopefully familiar to you from God's Word. All right. So, uh, I want us to consider a couple of things. The first thing, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to where I was in Samuel, 1 Samuel. Um, I, my intention was to just keep going. I didn't intend to spend all that time on just uh, Samuel's work and ministry. I also wanted to look at how his first prophecy came about and its implications, because I believe it has to do with another one of the questions here. Um, it's not the only example I'm going to use. I'm going to go to two other ones in the scripture here to help guide us in this question of how much do I force my child to engage in godly activity and at what point do I take my hands off and God doesn't hold me responsible. This comes into play particularly um, with pastors and deacons because in the listing of qualifications it says that we are to uh, that, that you are to examine not only the man spiritually but also his family and so he should be managing his own household well he he should have not only himself but his family should be evidencing uh, the work of God in them uh, to the extent that it is under his authority we're going to talk about that very shortly here so obviously Samuel's first prophecy has to do with Eli and so to really understand the extent of this, uh, we have to go back up a little bit before his prophecy to find out what was going on that God is going, sending word through Samuel and not directly to the high priest, or any, uh, but through Samuel, a child, to the high priest that he, there's trouble brewing, that there is some uh, bad news. Prophetic utterances was bad news, um, and it always is bad news if you don't repent. Remember, the purpose of sending prophecy is to point out sin and then call the sinner to repentance. And that's true of all prophecy, and that's why when you go to, even to Revelation, the last prophetic letter, what do we have? We have seven letters to seven churches, six out of seven are chastised, and said, listen, you're, you, you started well, but you lost your first love, or you, you're tolerating this in your church, and if you don't, I will remove your candlestick from you and you will not participate in the, these. And, and then we have all this stuff about warning. And what is it there? It's there to call them to repentance, call them to the first love. If you don't, then you're not going to have part with the saints. You're not going to have God's blessing. You're going to have God's curses. And that's true throughout the prophetic scriptures. So if you want to go through Daniel uh, and you want to go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets so-called, Hosea, Jonah, all of them come with a very negative message, don't they? They come with a message, uh, Jonah comes into Nineveh, what does he say? God's going to destroy this place in three days. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's great news to wake up to. Um, well, why did God send that? 
not because God is a downer, um, but rather God wants us to repent. And so he gives us a warning of impending misery and judgment, even death, if you don't repent. And so it is his grace that sends this. So that means that since Samuel's coming with one of the first prophecies of the prophetic era, that was so-called, that's what we call it, the prophetic era begins with Samuel, um, that not, not that there wasn't any prophecies before that, because obviously Joseph had dreams and, and such things like that. So, Pharaoh and others. So we come to Samuel, and so the reason the Lord has come to him is because God is getting ready to judge a sin. So the sin is in Eli's household. So let's back up to back into chapter 2 and look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Wow. Now remember, last week we kind of ended with the fact that Samuel had, did not know the Lord yet. Do you remember that? He, he did not know the Lord, nor had God revealed himself to Samuel yet as a boy. But we're not dealing with boys here when we get to Eli's sons. These are men who are already engaged. They're old enough to serve in the temple, which means they're over 25, right? 25 they start and they go till 45, right? 50, 45, 20. It was 20 years. So they, they had that ministry period. So they were already in that ministry. So they were corrupt that is, they were, they were defiling the ministry. They didn't know the Lord, it says. And the priest's custom with the people was that any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. They would thrust it in a pan or kettle, a cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all his rights who came there. Also, before they burned the fat the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. These are, these are Eli's son's directives. Their servants were going in to do these. And these, this is not appropriate. You know, these activities. Therefore, the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Here's what happened. Because of the activity of Eli's sons in perverting the sacrificial uh, code of the law, men didn't even want to go and make sacrifices. They didn't want to go to the temple anymore. It says, it says men abhorred, they hated, they just didn't want to participate in the offering of the Lord because they knew that it was tainted by the corruptness of the sons of Eli, who only wanted what their own fleshly appetites were interested in. You know, I don't want boiled meat today, I want roasted meat, so go get it raw and roast it. Well, then it still had the fat in it, and the fat was the part that you burned before the Lord. They were supposed to have it after that. And so um, they were corrupting it. And as soon as you have these individuals who are in leadership roles corrupting it, what does it do? It turns off everyone else to worshiping God. And so while these people wanted to come and off, bring offerings to the Lord, burnt sacrifices, they didn't enjoy it. it. It was no longer pleasant for them. And this is a great evil. So the sons of Eli corrupted it, not only for themselves, not only for dad, but also for all of Israel. 
And so this gets God's attention now. And Eli knew this was happening. So let's jump down to verse 22. Um, we had intermediate verses about um, Samuel. We'll jump down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with women who are assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They were committing adultery at the tabernacle, the door to it. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord wanted, desired to kill them. They had gotten so bad, Eli had allowed it to get to such a degree that God had already determined in his heart to put them to death. All right? It wasn't that God hated these guys and wanted to kill them. He detested what they had done. Their influence had been so horrible that God had already put it in his mind and in his plans and purposes to put these men to death. And so um, Eli came upon the scene too late. His influence was too small, and God wouldn't let it take hold. They did not respond to the voice of their father. So then, here comes Samuel with his uh, prophecy against the house of Eli. And here's Eli's response. You have to go over to chapter 3. Let's read what he says here, chapter 3, verse 17. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all things he said to you. Verse 18, then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. All right, and so, and there's our verse. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And so Samuel was faithful uh, to communicate that uh, uh, the judgment, that God's going to judge his house for the iniquity that he, which is, Eli knew about and did not stop. Eli had the authority to call the people together and actually have his own sons executed for what they're doing, or at least put out of the temple and banished, put out of the tabernacle, I'm sorry, tabernacle, and to be to eradicated from their role. It would have meant him turning his back on his own sons and saying, you no longer have part and parcel with us, you are out. That's what would have been required of him. He didn't do that, so now it's, the judgment is upon Eli because he knew. And by the way, that's back in verse 13. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. He did not hold them back or rebuke them and correct them. He did not stop it. And that rebuke word is a very strong word. It's, it's that he didn't take every measure available to him to stop this. Okay? And so God is going to judge not only him, or not only the sons, but he holds Eli responsible for not rebuking, correcting, take every measure possible. So, is this the first time that the priest's sons have caused problems in Israel? No. Huh? Yeah, and Abad and Abihu. Uh, Nate, the sons of 
of uh, Aaron, Aaron's sons. So he had three sons. The oldest two got into trouble. They burned false incense before the Lord. God struck them dead right on the spot. Boom. Immediate judgment. Um, they knew better. They either didn't take it seriously or they had their own ideas of what should happen. And boom, God strikes them dead right on the spot. And everyone goes, whoa, okay. And so it's the next son that becomes uh, in the, the, the priestly family then from there. And so this isn't the first time. And, and so this is at least the second time. And again, we have other events of judges and Samuel's sons themselves are going to corrupt themselves. His own sons are going to do this. And God is going to uh, address that. Um, who is the primary recipient of God's direct hand of judgment? It's the children themselves. The children of the priests receive the judgment. Who is the secondary uh, recipient of that judgment are, is the father. So the secondary one is the father. Um, for Eli, did God strike Eli dead or did he anything like that? Not really, but when he gets word that his sons are dead and that the ark has been captured, what happens? You guys know the story? His heart, his life failed him. He, he just... He drained, he just got, went into shock, essentially, fell over and broke his neck because of the weight. So, uh, and so he dies in that manner. So when we look at this, um, this is one old, a couple of Old Testament examples that press the issue. How much responsibility do I have over my adult children's spiritual uh, state? Now, it doesn't really apply all the way through. Because we're not setting up our children as in the authority structure of the priesthood in terms of leading an entire nation. And so God has a different standard for leadership than he has for those not in leadership. Would you agree with that? Even the New Testament, that's why we have a standard for pastors, deacons, different than the standard necessarily. It is an ideal that all Christians should should strive after, but it is a standard that is particularly set aside for pastors, deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus as well. So, um, uh, we, we don't have complete correlation over here, but I just want to use these as a couple examples that were right in the text about Samuel's ministry, so kind of address both questions. The one I want to talk about is one you're also very familiar with, and that is the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son. What happens there? We have two sons of a man. They both come into their adulthood. Um, the one says, I want my inheritance. The younger one, I want my inheritance and I want to leave. He sees the allure of the world and says, you know, living under dad's authority is, is a drag. Who knows how long he's going to live. And I'm going to have to, and it's just drudgery and he wants his piece of the pie so that he can just go out and live as he wants. And uh, don't think that that equals half of everything he owns. Um, because he was the younger one, he probably had a smaller inheritance than the older. Uh, it's possible it's 50, but it's a story, so it's, here we go. And so he takes that. And of course, you know the story. He goes off and he wastes it. Pretty soon he's out of money. He's out of resources. 
he, he doesn't have skills. He doesn't invest his inheritance in developing any personal skills. And he ends up feeding pigs, which to a Jewish mind would be just reprehensible job. Um, you're not even supposed to associate with swine. And here his job is to feed the swine. And then he's even contemplating, well, I should be eating their food because they're getting fed better than me. And if you go down to the Fry's backyard, uh, you might think that of my pigs, okay? Um, that they, they eat organic stuff sometimes. This is whatever I pick up at the, at the market there that doesn't get sold. So produce that Americans won't buy because it looks a little bit brown. Uh, they can't sell at the grocery store, so I get it and I feed it to my pigs uh, rather than throwing it in the trash. So don't think that a lot of that stuff from stores is going to waste. It's just going into people's animals. There are a handful of us that do that. Um, I'm sure there's a lot around town that do it at different places. I just have one source, and it's more than I can handle. And I'm not the only one there, so there's a group of us. So, But you go in their backyard, and you will see pallets full, not cases, pallets full of food. And you might say, boy, your pigs eat better than most do we have a hunger problem in this country? No, not really. We, we might have a nutrition problem, but not a hunger problem. There's a difference between those two. Um, you can go to McDonald's and other fast food and eat regularly and, have a, and be starving your body for its nutrient needs, even while you're filling your tummy with uh, volume. So here he's out. He's wasted. He, he wants to eat what the animals are eating, what the pigs are eating. He comes to his senses. A very important phrase. He comes to his senses. Now, has dad bailed him out? No. Has dad engaged him at all? Wrote, written him letters? Dad, from every evidence, dad doesn't even know where he is. Um, but has dad been disengaged entirely? No, dad has been doing two things in that parable. What were the two things dad kept doing the entire time the son was out wasting himself before he came to his senses? Every time he was praying, he was watching for his return. He was watching the road. That means that there was an open opportunity for him to come back, but he had to repent and come back on his own. Okay, He had to come to his senses on his own. And that's a very important principle I believe very strongly in. And I am weary of parents intervening too soon before adult children come to their senses and bailing them out before they hit rock bottom. I don't do it for church members. If they want to continue to do that, and I don't move the church to say, let's bail them out of the problems they're creating, because I don't see them coming to repentance. And so they need to get worse. And I actually pray, God, just make them miserable. They're still not repenting. They're still not repenting. They're still not repenting. Does that mean I am unwilling to receive them? No, we are looking and anticipating and waiting and, and desiring them to come. We are staring down the road looking for them every day. Is today the day they're coming back? All the while praying, Lord, help them come to their senses. And it means you have to go all the way down to the most detestable, lowest. I mean, Jesus couldn't have painted a more despicable picture of pitifulness and misery in a Jewish mind. You are there penniless among the heathen, among the dogs of the Gentiles, or worse, Samaritans maybe, and you are feeding their pigs. 
and wanting to eat what the pigs are eating. That's about as bad as it gets, right? For a Jewish mind, you couldn't have gotten any worse. Well, that's how bad it has to get. And then we can bring them to back in. We're going to talk about the recovery period here in a little bit. So what are these examples from God's Word going to tell us about? Um, do we make our kids go to church? How far do we push that? And at what point do we... Um, uh, let them go their own way, essentially. And at what point do we take them kicking and screaming to church? And at what time do we communicate that these are, this is my house, this is what we do, we do this as a duty before the Lord, and it might be not something you're spiritually engaged in, but you're in my home, and so you're under my authority, you're under my provision, and so therefore you need to come with me. Now this is going to dovetail into the, the next question we want to talk about. And that uh, involved a little bit of um, how do we show examples of spiritual activity to our children. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that shortly, hopefully, if I work quickly. So, um, what do I derive from these examples? Number one, God holds dad accountable even with regard to your adult children's behavior to some degree. What is your responsibility to them? Your responsibility, while they're under your authority, is to warn them, rebuke them, and to call them to repentance. And if they do not repent, then to take measures necessary to essentially uh, exercise church discipline, excommunication on them, that they might learn the, the sin. I want you to notice that the father in the, in the parable of the prodigal son gives him his inheritance, doesn't withhold what is due, what, this is what you're going to get, but he doesn't restore any inheritance to him. He spent the entirety of his inheritance. So when he comes back, we focus on the party that the father has him, but we don't think about what's beyond that. The father tells us what's beyond that. He says, everything I have belongs to your older brother. He says that to the older brother. Everything I have is yours, which means your little brother has no claim to anything in this household from here on out. Wow. He spent it. He wasted it. You ever think about what's his future? What's his future? He came back home. He came to a census, came back home. What's his future? He's going to have to get some skills and work his way into something. He, he's not going to be able to move along on dad's resources. He's going to have to learn a skill and he's going to have to go out there and have some business savvy or engage himself in gainful employment, even if that employment is to his brother. Yeah, dad, uh, not dad anymore. It's brother, would you hire me? I'll watch your sheep. Okay, or I'll Whatever job brother has, and can you imagine that brother? <laughs> I don't know if I want to be on that because of the nature of that brother's attitude. But um, so he lost it all. The father gave him all of his inheritance and said, okay, here's what's yours. You want independence? You don't want to be under my authority? Then you're no longer under my authority. There it all is. Um, to come back, you're going to have to be under my authority. And the son understood this because when he came to his senses, what did he say? 
I could be a slave in my father's house and be better off. If you're a slave in someone's house, are you surrendering to their authority? You must, okay? So do not lose track of that, that your house, God holds you as the responsible authority over those in it. When they're outside of your house and they're wasting it out there in, in, in wine, women, and song, um, that's not under your authority. And so, yes, I counsel dads sometimes to let adult, even young adult children, the freedom to go. There's the door. Uh, what do you think is yours here? Take it. You think this stuff is all yours? Okay, I know you bought it for them, but to them it's theirs because you bought it for them for their birthday, for their Christmas, for whatever. They think it's all theirs. Take it with them. Um, but by the way, the, um, the payment plans for those, just Father just gives it all. You think this, you want your whole inheritance? There it is. Bam. Go. Live off of that. And what am I going to do? I'm going to pray. Am I going to bail them out? Am I going to hear that? No, I'm going to say, you didn't want to live under my authority. You don't, you have everything that you said that, is, that you're due. And so now I'm going to wait for you to come to your senses. And that is one of the hardest things to do as a father. Is it just back off and pray and say, God, do whatever you got to do in their lives because you know it's going to be misery. Eli wasn't willing to take that step. He knew about their sin. He told them it was wrong, but he wouldn't engage his authority to stop it in its tracks and to say, either stop it or you're out of here. And he could do that. He had the authority. He was the high priest. And he wasn't willing to do that, and it cost his boys their lives, and it cost him his life, and it cost them blessing. And I think we have a lot of costliness in our churches um, throughout this generation, the last 30, 40 years, because we're unwilling to bite the bullet and call it tough love if you want, whatever, and do what the father and the prodigal son's story. Now remember, the prodigal son's story is to tell you about the kingdom of heaven. So who is the father in that story? The father in that story is God. God is telling you what he would do. And the prodigal son is us. And the other, and the other son that was faithful is also some of us who complained that here that person went out there and wasted it, now you're going to restore them into the house on an equal plane as me? That they get to come in as, as full members of the church? Yes, but now what do they have to serve with? They've disqualified themselves from all kinds of service that they could do. There are consequences even as there is recovery. And so um, we're, we're seeing what God's nature would do in this parable. And so the prodigal, he just gives them all, but then he says, now you're on your own. You don't need me. You don't want to be under my authority. You're on your own. And boop, 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 boop. And predictably, it dissolves because there's not a maturity there because if they were mature, they would have never asked for their inheritance, right? 
The prodigal would have never asked to leave and get his inheritance if he was mature enough to understand what that meant. So predictably, because he wanted to do this and was allured by the world, we can predict that he's going to fail. And failure is a mechanism for repentance. And that's why we don't bail him out. And it is incredibly hard to stand back. And, and again, sometimes it's because we don't really believe in prayer like we should. And so to say, go on. And so if they're not going to come to church and they want to rebel against me spiritually, and they're probably already rebelling in a lot of other categories, whether I'm realizing it or not. And so I need to, first of all, warn them. God expects you to rebuke them, to warn them. You need to find out where they are spiritually. Who are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Because it's obvious that they're not loving and honoring their parents. That is a command by God that is repeated in the New Testament from the Old that you are to honor your father and mother. So if they're not obeying God's commands, Jesus Christ says, if you don't obey my commands, you probably aren't one of my disciples because to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to follow him which means you have to do it where he leads you. Um, furthermore, as we talked about this morning, this is not a loving relationship. They are all about themselves. Me, 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 me. And whether that's your fault or society's fault or their own fault, selfishness is inherent within us. Um, it doesn't have to be trained or grown. Um, can we spoil a child to enhance that? Yes, easily, um, but it doesn't, release them from responsibility of being selfish, okay? And so um, we realize that authority is authority. And authority is linked to provision and care. So to to answer the other question, um, if I'm going to tell my child to clean up their room, does it, to lead by example, is that me going in and doing it for them? No, frankly. Your example of that is caring for their mom. Your example for that, Dad, is obeying God. You want your child to obey you, you're going to obey God. And then to remind your children, listen, there's only one reason you have a room, because I provide it for you. I went to work all day. I provide this space for you. These clothes you're wearing, where did the money come from? to buy those clothes. I provide that. You've already shared that example to them. Now this is their opportunity to, to, be, to register a thankful spirit by obedience. And so, no, I'm not going to go in there and do that because I've already done it. By providing and paying for the utilities, make sure they have heat in their room, paying for the water bill, make sure they have clean, fresh water, uh, having food in the thing, all those aspects of provision, are already that, I don't have to go any further steps. I simply have to remind them of that. That's part of your rebuke and correction of a child. It's so they can get in their mind and adjust their thinking because they get warped. Because they forget that, and they start, and, and by the way, we're all that way. Because we just take, you ever take God for granted? And all that he's given you? You take your salvation for granted? You don't thank him for it every day? Okay, and so we're all that way. Your children aren't going to be any different than my children were. 
because you're not any different than I am. We all start taking these for granted. Um, you take uh, a heated space to worship in for granted. I got pictures this week from Kenya, um, and they had a conference, and they did not have a shelter, a cleared area for the shelter. So guess where they held their conference? In a planted grove. So you see all the people sitting for the conference among in the field, and the only shelter they have are the plants that are growing in the grove. So there's a plant between every person. That's where they're meeting this week. Would you go to that? Out and exposed to the elements? The only thing, you know, it's kind of like Jonah with a gourd. The only thing you got protecting you is a plant. And you're sitting out there and you got to look around a plant, not just a person's head. You don't have Scott hiding you. You're his head. You have, you know, a mango tree or whatever. I don't know what kind of grove it was. You have, you have to sit there and look around this reed in front of you, whatever it was. And so, but they're praising God. You know, we have natural shelter instead of man-made shelter from the sun for our meeting. And of course, this is in tropical, this is Kenya where it's hot, even in January. So they're praising God for natural shelter from the sun. Well, we take this for granted. You get upset if you, if I get upset, if I come in here and it's a little colder than I feel comfortable with. If it's not between, you know, 67 and 72 in here, um, people say, boy, it's cold in here or it's hot in here. Um, so we do that. So how do we address that with our children? Well, we remind them of how much they have already. I don't have to give them more. I have to rebuke them and correct them of what, how good they have it. Frankly, this son did not understand how good he had it until he had none of it. And that's common sense. That's when he comes to his senses. What am I doing? I had it so good. I am a stupid head. How could I have walked away from that? Because I didn't appreciate it. And that's why a discontented, unthankful spirit needs to be rebuked in your children's lives as soon as it reveals itself. When your child complains because the food isn't what they wanted, that's, that, that's physical corporeal punishment on the spot. When my kids grew up, they were either thankful for their food or they didn't eat the food or they ate the food with a sore bottom. Because unthankfulness is not allowed. It demonstrates that you don't realize how good you have it. Now, when we grew up, what did we get to hear from our parents? Now, when I'm talking about we, I'm talking about Paul, Mary, and I, and Joyce. Obviously, it's the older people. What did we hear at the dinner table? Eat all of your food. Why? There's children starving. <laughs> well, can we really box up our food and send it to starving kids in Africa or Haiti or anywhere? No. What are they trying to tell you? You should be thankful and you should eat this because you have so much compared to other people who have so little. They're trying to stop unthankfulness. Rebellion comes out of unthankfulness and it, unthankfulness is a revelation of rebellion. So when we th see an unthankful spirit, oh, this isn't good enough for me. Oh, I have to wear these clothes. Everyone else has the designer clothes. And I watched some video that sent me by, by Solomon Raju this week, you know, uh, the, these karma videos from India. And it's like, 
you bought me this bag. I don't even know what the name brands are. I, want, I can't be caught dead with hearing that handbag. You got to buy me this expensive handbag. And I'm like, it's a handbag. Who cares except for other women that are too uppity to want to be around. But um, it, that's what we become. And so how do we resolve that? Well, we rebuke and correct it at home while they're under our authority. And if they don't want to go to church because they don't appreciate it, we need to lecture them, yes, lecture them, and maybe even a step further and communicate to them how blessed it is to have the opportunity to be involved in spiritual activity, even if they aren't in a relationship with God to fully appreciate it. They should at least appreciate the opportunity because, you know, in some countries, it's against the law. We would be dead for doing what we're doing. We would certainly be hunted for doing what we're doing. But you take it for granted because it's so familiar and easy. So we need to rebuke and correct that, the underlyingness of it. And then if they do not respond to that, then we need to do what that father did and said, you want, because this will always expand into full rebellion when they get into the young adulthood. If they do not respond, respond to rebuke and correction and the measures Eli should have taken, and he did take some measures. He says, what you're doing is wrong. You shouldn't do that. Well, by the time he actually addressed it, they were already committing sexual immorality at the tabernacle gates. How far along is that? He should have addressed it way earlier. Okay? And so we want to address that very early on. Be thankful. You should be thankful you have a room to clean. Be thankful you have toys to pick up. Be thankful you have clothes that need to be washed and put in the hamper. Um, and if they aren't, take them away. You don't want to clean up these toys? Poof! The toys disappear. They disappear. Now, some families, that means they're going to go give them to Goodwill, and they really disappear. Some parents that are a little more frugal like us, we hide them. <laughs> hide them in the attic. We hide them somewhere, and the kids don't get them. They don't get access to them. You won't pick them up, you lose them. I do that, I, I do that principle in nursery. You want to fight over that? It's gone. Now you'll learn not to fight over toys. Because you have plenty of toys, you should be thankful. But we always see other ones. And the same thing in the spiritual realm. You should be thankful for this opportunity you have. If you don't want to invest in that opportunity, I can't change your thinking while you're sitting in church, but I can put you in church and maybe the Holy Spirit can get a hold of you. While you're under my authority, this is the way it is. But if you want to go out there, and you want to be your own person, and, re, and you don't want to respect my authority, then I will give you everything you think is yours and send you on your way. But remember, the only way you get back in here is by humbly submitting to the authority God's placed in your life. Now, every example we've used so far is a male. Do you notice that? A son. And I told you last week that there's a distinction in God's word between a son and a daughter. Um, a daughter, in God's word, is to be under the authority of dad, and the only thing that changes that is either dad's death or the daughter's marriage. Then she becomes under the authority of her husband. And so I am, I am a I've grown over the years to be more and more committed to that. So poor Valerie is getting hammered with it. 
her older sisters had a little more liberty, but it was costly. And so I'm not an advocate of sending your daughter off to school. I don't care if it's a Christian school or others. I believe they should remain in the home under the authority of dad, even for their collegiate education. I do not believe in it. And remember, co-ed education and women going off to college is a modern phenomenon. Completely modern. It has no place historically. Um, Because biblically, she is to be under the authority of dad until she is married or dad dies. When dad dies, then something happens. We, we have a widow, and the Bible has a lot of instructions. Why does it say the widow? It doesn't say widow and orphans. It says the widows and fatherless. Then it becomes the church's responsibility, and I take personal responsibility for the fatherless when they come into the church. If your father is absent, either spiritually because he's not there physically, because not only death, but, but of separation, or he wasn't ever there, I personally get involved, and I exercise authority. I say, this is what this girl should be doing. Boom, 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 boom. Moms need that. And if it's not pastor, it should be uncle, it's a Christian godly man should take that authority and say no. This, and talk to mom and say no. Um, and yes, even make some decisions and act like a dad in her life until she is married. Uh, I find nowhere in scripture where it is um, uh, released from that. I know there are examples in Scripture, um, but those examples are women that were um, not in a biblical model the, of a godly home. I know Lydia, the seller of purple, was a businesswoman, but we don't know anything about her family. It says her household got saved. We don't know what that entails. It could even include her father. Or she might have been quite a bit older, and dad was off the scene. We don't know. Okay, we often talk about our children, but the household, that term in Scripture refers to like, uh, and Rahab was similarly, right? Her whole household, which could have been her parents as well as, as children, uncles, aunts, whoever is in her larger household. And uh, um, to, to put it into New Mexican language, her cousins, you know, because everyone's a cousin. I mean, I sit there and try to talk to people. I say, well, they're not really your cousin then. They're like your well, we just call them all cousins. I was like, okay. You know, but, you know, they're really like, that's like your great niece or something. Well, it's, your, it's my cousin. And so um, that household. And so we have this expectation. Now, we have a problem. We don't live in that environment. This is what I've been talking about last Sunday morning when we talked about the fact that we have moved so far. Well, one of those things that has moved in my lifetime was the women's liberation movement. So why since the 60s and 70s, and really even before that when we had the suffrage movement, we have been steadily eroding that biblical model in society. To get back to it would appear to the world to be completely radical and puritanical. You know, what is wrong here? Kind of, you know, you're going back to the Middle Ages or something. No, we're going back a lot farther back than that. <laughs> We're going back to the Bible. It says, I am under the authority of my dad until I'm under the authority of my husband, and in that capacity, I can minister. And so the virtuous woman is 
is involved in business. She's a businesswoman. You can see that. She has authority with over her household, in a, with the exception of her husband, that she's essentially supporting and, and his position of authority at the city gates. And so she's directing the servants of what to do and things like that and her children. And so she is involved in all of that. She's buying property and selling property and things like that. So she's, she's, she's active. Don't think that, she, you know, we, we want them, you know, the, the, what is it, the three C's that they set in camp that one day, whether for, they're for cooking, cleaning, and childbearing or something. Um, it's much more substantial than that in Scripture, but it's a matter of being under authority. So we have to live in a society that is post-women's liberation. So that has degraded this biblical model now. And now if we want to get back to it, um, we're seen as ogres. Well, I'm just trying to get back to a biblical model. And so I regret sending my daughter off to school. Now, Julie didn't want to go off to school, so she stayed local. She stayed in my house until she got married. And even... And by the time she was getting married, I had already come to some of these decisions. And they wanted to get an apartment. And, and they came to me and they said, well, Julie's like, well, I'm going to move into the apartment before we get married to get it ready. And I was like, no, you're not. Cody's going to move into the apartment. Because the Bible says the man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Not the girl's supposed to leave her father and mother and cleave to her. No, he leaves mom and dad. Proves that he can live on his own for a little while, even if it's for a few months in an apartment. Just prove you can live without a mommy, all right, for a few months without mommy and daddy, and then cleave to my daughter. You're going to stay in my house till you're married. And she did. Okay? And so this is that development, and you might say, well, man, you're out there in left, no, I'm out there in right field, the, God's words field. And so when it comes to girls, um, they're under my authority, and, and this is God's calling on my life. Now, if they want to leave that because of the Women's Live Movement in the last 50 years and its influence, they um, behave like men. They behave like young men. And society gives them that right, um, that uh, foolishness. And so... Um, you're in, a, you're in a tough spot with gals. If they don't want to participate spiritually, now you're in a tough spot because you have responsibility over them authority-wise from Scripture, and God's going to hold you to that. But then you also have a situation that they are behaving like young men, which should be just give them whatever's theirs and send them off to live miserably. But um, they, when you do that to a young woman, she loses her protection. And this is a concept... Um, that was not foreign until recently. This is a common, even in uh, Charles Dickens' writings of like Little Dorrit, well, certainly they're not going to, uh, and uh, the other one, who's the other one you guys always watch, um, her movies, Jane Austen. The concept is she has family and friends that she is under their wing of protection so that they aren't abused by society. Um, and and that's a biblical concept that we still have authority there. And so um, dealing with young ladies is going to have to be modified. 
somewhat. And you're going to have to weigh that out. But biblically, they should be under authority from dad, transferred to husband. If dad dies, it should be transferred to a mature, godly man um, and uh, until they're married. They just should be under the authority and, and should stay in the home until that. What's wonderful, when I went to the Philippines and talking to these single women, and uh, they didn't look like they were late 30s, early 40s. They, they were like 38, 39, 40, uh, these three gals I'm sitting there eating with, and they're all single. Um, and, uh, you know, and they said, and I, I thought they were like about 30, and I was like, you know, you got any prospects? I said, no. And, and of course, they're looking at my Facebook stuff because this is the day of social media, so they got their phones and already looking everything up about me. They know I have a son. They know, you know, uh, is he married? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he's not going to come over here and visit you. Um, so, <laughs> good luck. But we have this, um, uh, what all of them were living at home. Why? Because the women's liberation movement of America didn't penetrate the Philippines like it did here. Culturally, that is still what they all, good girls, all stay at home and live with mom and dad until they're married, even when they're 40. And I was like, well, that's refreshing. You know, and so um, spiritually, um, how does that work if they rebel against your authority? Well, um, because of our society, you've got a really tight line where you're going to have to say, well, do I treat them like a boy and give them everything they deserve and go out there and have them be miserable with no protection? Or do I modify that some way and put some protections over them but give them this enough rope to kind of hang themselves with um, with the hope that they come back to repentance? Or do I just say, put the hammer down and say, you're in my house, this is the way it's going to be, boom. And, and I don't know that I have the full answer for you. And again, part of the problem is the de degeneration of the Christian environment. That we are not what we were, even in my lifetime, what we were when we were children. Um, that has degraded in the last 60 years. That we have gone from that model to a different model where our women are all expected to have careers. They get their own apartments. They have their own lives. They... Uh, decide their own childbearing status, they go off and they have no authority over them. And that is a foreign to the Bible. Okay, That's the wayward woman that's described in Proverbs that men are to avoid. Well, if you avoid all women in that capacity this, at this time, you have very few choices of women that will submit to you as a husband, which is why our marriages are in such big trouble because wives aren't submitting to their husbands because they didn't submit to their dads. And society applauded them. Oh, we're going to applaud these wonderful women. We give awards out in the city for women and starting businesses and doing all this. Um, and, and we applaud it as society. We hail it. Instead of saying, we applaud this relationship with dad and, and staying at home learning to be a, uh, and it doesn't mean you can't have a, uh, skills and training. 
It's uh, because some of these young women, not young women anymore, middle-aged women in the Philippines, they have spectacular jobs. You know, uh, the one is pretty high in the government, in the financial department. She's an accountant, CPA. She's very accomplished. All of these women are very accomplished, but they're still living at home. I say, well, that's Filipino culture. Well, that's biblical. Okay, and so um, can we get back to that? Well, I'm trying. I will teach your young girls that they should be under the authority of dad all their days until they're married, and they should be under the authority of their husband because this is how God protects them. And I believe one of the reasons we have so much abuse going on, sexual abuse, as a huge problem in this country is because we are sending girls out unprotected, even to college campuses. What is the problem on UNM's campus? They constantly have these emergency calls. What? Girls being attacked in the parking lot and in the dorms and on and on it goes. And, and, but they're out from under authority and they live like, in a, they live like prostitutes and then they complain if they're treated like prostitutes. And so... Um, the solution is bringing back to authority. So that's a very long answer to a couple of quick yes or no questions. <laughs> but we all know that yes or no questions usually are more complicated than yes or no. Okay, And so um, we pray hard, we um, fulfill our roles because God does hold us accountable for the authority and then we if they wait and want to come back, when they repent, come to their senses and come back, then we set the terms. All right? And this son coming back knew those terms. I'm going to go back as his slave. <laughs> Tell that to your daughter. You can come back as my slave <laughs> or to your son. You can come back here, but you're my slave. What does that mean? Complete submission to authority. And that's how that son was ready. That, he, was broken, he was broken in his spirit and was ready to submit to dad. And, he, and dad honored him for that. Did he get another half of dad's possessions? No. He was going to have to get a job. He was going to have to support himself into adulthood. He was going to have to learn skills. But he had the, the place in the family. But with lasting consequences. Okay? Does that... Any of that settle all right with you or not good with you or further questions, comments? I've gone late, but. Are you going, are you going, oh, I'm more confused than ever now. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed tonight. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. And we pray that we might be wise in our relationship with our children and their relationship with you. And Lord, we pray we might be exemplary and we do pray for our fathers, our husbands. Uh, and we know that there's much on their shoulders that you hold them accountable for and society has uh, just discredited it and just said it's not worth anything, the role of father. But we know it even from the studies that have done that it is vital and we pray for our dads, and we pray for our fatherless, and 
that we encounter. We see them at We're Life Clubs. We see them other places. Lord, we pray that we might be able to reach into their homes and reach dads with the gospel. And Lord, we see so much uh, evidence that once dad submits his ways to you, that so many good things happen in homes. So we pray for um, our dads. We pray for the needs of, of unsaved dads and husbands. Lord, we uh, pray that you might help us to recognize that the battle is, we've already lost so much ground um, that it will take enormous effort to gain that ground back, even if it's on a very small scale. We don't expect to do it societally, but Lord, help us to do it within our church and churches, within our families, that we might say we're going to claim higher ground. We're going to claim back that territory that uh, Satan has robbed us of our joy and of our safety and of our spiritual uh, uh, blessing. And Lord, we pray for wisdom. Um, We pray for uh, patience. But we also pray that you might help us let you complete your work in our children that are in rebellion, that uh, they might come to their senses one day and realize how good they do have it. Help us to remind our young ones just how good they have it and that they have no reason to complain, that complaining itself is sin given their place in this home, in our church, in our country. And Lord, uh, help us to to, uh, discipline them for complaining and for being unthankful and Uh, Lord, we pray that you might um, fill in what we can't do and convict them. And Lord, we uh, pray that you might continue to work in several, not only of children, but of adults that we have had in our church, that we have seemingly, to our eyes, have lost them to the world. And we see them involved in drugs. We see them involved in illegitimate births. We see them involved in miserable lives. And Lord, but they know we're here. They know the truth they heard while they were here. And we pray that you might keep working and bring them even more misery till they come to their senses and say, why did I ever leave that for this? And Lord, we want to receive them. We want to minister to them. And we know there's long-lasting consequences in their lives because of their uh, foolishness and their decisions but Lord we can still minister to them and bring them uh, into your family and and uh, and their balance of their days can be uh, to your glory and we pray for that to happen in their lives even throughout this week and praise says in Christ Jesus name Amen